Welcome to the Theology Research News Podcast. Theology Research News provides updates from KU Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies to a worldwide academic audience. It features interviews with faculty members, discussions with visiting scholars, and updates about our publications, conferences, and other events. Please visit TRN at theologyresearchnews.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Today we feature the inaugural lecture of Judith Gruber, who is research professor at KU Leuven, where she's a member of the Systematic Theology and Study of Religions Research Unit. The title of Judith Gruber's lecture is Doing Theology with Cultural Studies, Rewriting History, Reimagining Salvation, Decolonizing Theology. Geachte Dekan, geachte Ehrerektor, geachte Professoren, geachte Kollegas, liebe Familie und Freunde, dear students, I'm standing here with a profound feeling of gratitude. Gratitude for the warm welcome that I've received here in Löwen from my very first day. Gratitude also and especially for the appreciative words from Dekan de Tavenier and Professor Peter de May that they have found for welcoming us to this event. Thank you very much. I also feel gratitude for seeing so many of my colleagues, friends and family who have come also from far away to celebrate with me my arrival in Leuven. And so I would like to start with a word of thanks. Thank you first and foremost to the faculty, to former Dean Lamberichts, and to current Dean de Tavernier, and to the Vice Deans Professor Pierre van Hecke, Professor Johann Lehmanns, and Professor Benedikt Lemmeling, my coach. Thank you for your support and encouragement, and for making my arrival here in Leuven as smooth, as productive, and as easy as possible. I would also in particularly like to thank my colleagues from the Untersuchseinheit Systematische Theologie und Religiewettenschaften, still learning. When I arrived one and a half years ago, you have given me the warmest welcome imaginable. And since then, I have come to deeply cherish the collegiality and the, uh, in our research units, the passionate theological discussions and good times shared over wonderful Flemish cuisine. You have made it easy for me to feel at home here in Leuven, and for this I'm very, very grateful. I also have had the privilege to meet and work with colleagues from other research units. It is an honor to be a part of this faculty. Uh, and I look forward very much to continuing and deepening the conversations in the time to come. I would also like to thank the members of the Fakultätsadministratie. Uh, there is a lot to learn when you arrive uh, at the KU Leuven, and you have been incredibly patient, incredibly supportive, and incredibly helpful here. Von Harte bedankt also for making this event possible. I'm also very, very happy to see so many students, so many PhD researchers in the audience. I would like to thank you for again and again making this faculty what it is really famous for and what it's rightfully famous for and renowned for. A place of intercultural encounter, a place of intellectual exposure and challenge, 
a place where we grow from meeting each other and from engaging with each other's standpoints, together on a shared theological journey. I'm also very grateful for friends and family who have taken long journeys to be here today and to celebrate with us. I'm so very happy you're here. Ein ganz besonderer Dank geht dabei an meine Mutter, die den weiten Weg aus Österreich auf sich genommen hat, uh, um heute hier zu sein. Thank you, Mom, for representing the Gruber family. And finally, thank you to my husband, Mark, Mark Finnegan, for being here with me always. It's wonderful to cross oceans and continents together with you, and it's lovely to have arrived in Leuven with you together. And with this big thank you at the very beginning, allow me to begin my inaugural lecture, Doing Theology with Cultural Studies. Academics love stories of decline, especially about themselves. But academic theologians may love them most of all, owing perhaps to the lapsarian character of their own narrative. So let us begin with such a tale. Once there was systematic theology, but because of a combination of serpentine factors, each tempting theology away from the comprehensive character of its object and method, whether by the allure of liberalism, the disenchantment of modernity, the fragmentation of postmodernism, the modifiers of emancipation, or the crisis of authority. Because of all these factors, systematic theology lost its way, fell from grace, and scattered, confused, in the babble of the modern university. Systematic theology is no more. So at times the story goes. With this vivid sketch, Brad East reminds us of some of the major challenges that theology has undergone since the rise of modernity. And these shifts have been profoundly unsettling indeed. As East points out, they have chipped away at the very foundations of the project of systematic theology. And taking his diagnosis as a springboard, my goal for today is to look for ways in which theology can respond critically and creatively to this ongoing loss of its self-evidence. I will focus on more recent critiques of Christian traditions through the lens of critical cultural studies. Critical cultural studies investigate the political dynamics of power and knowledge regimes in cultural and religious formations. They draw on a range of theoretical frameworks and methodological tools, for example, on post-structuralist theories, post-colonial studies, feminist theory, also on cultural anthropology and semiotics. And they do this to investigate the discourses, the practices, and the performances that shape, transform, and resist identity formations and relations of power and knowledge in communities and societies. A particular focus is given to formations of class, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and national identity. And here it comes. An exposure of Christian traditions to the lens of critical cultural studies raises a number of profound challenges for systematic theological reflection. In particular, cultural studies 
complicates the foundational theological assumption that there is an authentic Christian proprium that exists independently from its relations to other identity discourses. Systematic theology has traditionally understood itself to have a twofold task. It first clarifies ad intra the foundations of Christian faith, and then in a second step, ad extra, it relates Christian faith to external discourses and defends its plausibility in the public forum of reason. Cultural studies reverse the line of investigation. They look into the many discrepant ways in which Christian identities have been forged from the webs of meaning-making within the many symbolic universes that Christians have inhabited and still inhabit. Such an investigation reveals the discrepant permutations that the Christian tradition has taken in its complicated alignments with social forces. It exposes a dazzlingly diverse range of Christianities, and it shows that the Christian narrative has served for both liberative and oppressive purposes. Crucially, the power critique of cultural studies does not stop short of the normative orienting principles that have traditionally served to domesticate the messiness of Christian tradition. These normative orienting principles did this by subjecting the plurality of Christian traditions to coherent master narratives that speak either about a decline from a pristine origin or about progress towards ever greater knowledge of God. A critique through the lens of cultural studies shows that such historical and theological constructions of cohesion and stability, too, result from negotiations over power and knowledge in ecclesial traditions. These normative-orienting principles of the Christian tradition are not prior to discussions about Christian identity, but they too emerge from these discussions and they thus lose the self-evidence as absolute norms in the writing of church history. The question I would like to answer today is this. How can we practice theology in a way that can be honest about these messy complexities of Christian lives? Can we account theologically for the discrepant and ambiguous ways in which Christian beliefs and Christian symbols figure in different times and places? And if so, how can we account for this mess theologically? I will suggest that this is possible if we practice theology literally as apologetics. The Greek prefix apo translates into English as away from, away from, from, as without or derived from or related to. Apo indicates derivation and dependence rather than autonomy and self-evidence. Apology is literally speech that comes from somewhere else. Apologetic theology, then, is a theological practice that knows about the constitutive role of other discourses in the formation of Christian traditions. And it is a theology that takes the complexity of Christian practices 
as a point of departure for constructing knowledge about God. It is thus apologetic also because it does not shy away from the profound theological questions that arise from a critical relecture of Christian traditions through the lens of cultural studies. It does not withdraw unapologetically to the established Lozi of Christian God talk as if there were a self-evident foundation from which we can start from. Instead, such a theological approach takes an interdisciplinary approach that seeks to reformulate these Lozi within a power-critical framework. With Paul Tillich, we can thus say that such an interdisciplinary theological approach performs the art of answering, and it fulfills the biblical mandate to be ready always to give an answer to apologeme, to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in with you, the passage that every systematic theologian, I guess, has to quote in an inaugural lecture. Theology, as the practice of apologeme, of course, has often been understood as the defense of a given, unchangeable proprium of Christian faith. At first sight, few scholars who work in the interface of theology and cultural studies would thus describe their project as apologetic. In my lecture, however, I will argue that, uh, that such an interdisciplinary approach harbors theological resources that allow us to reconceive of apologetics not as a mere application, but as the very constitution of Christian traditions. Doing theology through the lens of cultural studies profoundly changes the frameworks within which we can talk about the salutary presence of God in the world. And understanding theology as apologetics, as speech from elsewhere, allows us to explicate these reconfigurations with which we seek to respond theologically to a power knowledge critique of Christian tradition. I will build my argument for an apologetic theology by way of a case study that rereads New Testament stories of uh, cross and resurrection through the lens of cultural studies. And this case study serves two purposes. On the one hand, it offers you a glimpse into the workshop uh, of how we do uh, such an interdisciplinary theology. And on the other hand, this case study will allow me to develop resources, conceptual resources, to support my argument for apologetic theology. So in what follows, I will take you on a journey again, during which we will cross several geographic and conceptual fields. And so that we don't lose our way, I have prepared a map to guide us that will unfold as we continue through this morning. Let us start our journey in a perhaps unexpected place. The Africa Museum in Tervuren, near Brüssel. At the end of the 19th century, it was founded by Leopold II to promote his colonial project in the Congo. Up until recently, the museum has told the history of the Belgian-African encounter from the perspective of the colonizers in a glorifying way that remains silent on the violence of this colonial project. Like other ethnological museums across Europe, it produced selective, sanitized memories of Belgium's colonial past 
and it erased memories of colonial trauma in public memory. Over the last years, the museum was closed for renovation, and the administration worked on new modes for representing Belgium's colonial past. The museum has aimed to divest itself of its colonial gaze that had served to legitimize the colonial exploitation of the Congo. Instead, it wants to shift its focus to the natural and cultural diversity of Central Africa in order to represent Africa from non-European perspectives. The renovation was accompanied by a lively national and international debate. As it turned out, the museum interviewing pioneered an emerging public debate across Europe of how to deal with the vast colonial collections in museums across the continent. And in these debates, in these European debates, we can register seismographic shifts that renegotiate how the colonial past features in cultural memory in Europe. At stake is ultimately the question in which ways colonial history can be remembered as an integral part of European identity. Let me repeat this. At stake is ultimately the question in which ways colonial history can be remembered as an integral part of European identity. This is as much a question about Europe's past as it is about its present and future. Thomas Thiemeyer, for example, professor of cultural studies in Tübingen has argued that the debates about colonial memory politics in Germany, in Germany's ethnological museums, tie into current negotiations about Germany's transformation into a country of immigration. These debates, he says, have both local and global dimensions. Does Germany and other countries in Europe understand themselves as culturally, hom culturally homogeneous and ethnically pure? Or do they and can they embrace cultural change and ethnic hybridity as an integral part of the self-understanding? And can Europe acknowledge these global entanglements, past and present, economic, cultural, and political? These entanglements that sponsor its self-understanding as peaceful and prosperous. Any remembering of the colonial past, T. Meyer therefore says, is intimately connected to the question about who gets to belong in which ways to European societies. Cultural memory politics negotiates the representation of the past in order to shape patterns of participation in contemporary societies. The colonial heritage of museums across Europe does point us to complex relations between historical violence, practices of representation, and politics of participation. We can unpack these entanglements a little further with Jacques Rancière's political philosophy. For Rancière, politics and aesthetics interlock in the constitution of the world of a community. Communities, he says, constitute their political and their social order through a partage du sensible, the distribution of the sensible. This is the order through which a community arranges what it considers as visible, as sayable, and as understandable. It is Rancière's central point 
that in any community there are those who have no part and no participation in the arrangement of what is considered as sensible, as understandable, as visible. Participation within the community rests on the exclusion of those who remain invisible. This share of the excluded is the parts de sans parts, the part without part. Therefore, Ferrancière, partage du sensible has a twofold meaning. It refers on the one hand to that which facilitates participation, and on the other hand to that which separates and therefore excludes. Inclusion and exclusion go hand in hand. Rancière can help us to see that Europe's ethnological museums partake in the creation of regimes of invisibility, in which aesthetic representations of the colonial past regulate political patterns of participation in European societies. When museums now make efforts to decolonize their collections, they aim at shifting established patterns of rep practices of representation in order to acknowledge historical guilt and to pave the way for more equitable politics of participation in local and global societies. The metaphors that are used in this debate are very often soteriological. In the decolonization of the museums, there is talk of violence and reconciliation, of death and reparation, of wounding and healing, of guilt and reconciliation. In short, the debate about colonial collections in Europe's museums couches decolonization in sociological categories and it conceives of these sociological categories in terms of political aesthetic regimes of visibility and invisibility. This debate therefore raises questions about the political implications of sociological imaginations and can therefore provide us with resources to look in new ways at salvation and how salvation figures politically, aesthetically, and theologically as a regime of invisibility. This brings us back to the Africa Museum in Tervuren. By investigating how this museum stages colonial healing, we can examine which regimes of visibility and invisibility have been created through the renovation process. The former entrance hall of the museum is a particularly rich site for such an investigation. Here, visitors used to be greeted with statues of white men and women in gilded robes, cradling naked African children, above plaques that extol Belgium for bringing civilization to the Congo. These statues represent the colonial discourse through the gaze of the colonizer. The Renovation Committee has decided to reshape this space through an artistic intervention. It commissioned a new statue by a sculptor who is originally from the Congo, Emem Pane. The, uh, this new statue is entitled Congo Nouveau Souffle, Congo Nouveau, uh, Congo New Breath, and it is placed in addition to the older statues into the center of the hall. In which ways can we see this intervention? How can we look into the ways into which regimes of invisibility we can arrange these statues old and new? I encountered 
a first possible reading of the museum's new memory politics during a tour through the museum last year before it reopened to the public. The renovations were still in full swing, uh, and Impana's statue had not yet been placed into the rotunda, into this entrance hall. And so my first impression of this new arrangement came through our guide's description. I didn't see the statue, all I heard was his description of it. And from his story, I could detect a desire to construct an unambivalent story from colonial wounding to colonial healing. And this underpinned his imagination of the future hall. In his account, the new statue would provide a sharp contrast to the colonial representations of the older statues. And this vision allowed him to build a linear storyline from past colonialism to contemporary independence. Based on his account, I imagined Impana's statue to represent an unblemished black body adorned with traditional African embellishments, telling a story about the beauty and resilience of African life that has left the colonial past behind. Colonial death, the statue signaled for him, has been overcome. He saw in the future arrangements of the rotunda a vision of complete restoration and an orderly transfer of power, telling a story of wounds fully healed, leaving no scars. Yet, is this the only way we can see these statues? Gayatri Spivak, a post-colonial theorist, after all, has warned us of the pitfalls of such a historiography of the cure that constructs a linear narrative from wounding to healing. The cure, Spivak says, produces predictable chronologies that seduce the subject into pure repetition by repeating the colonial practice of constructing the self by constructing the other. The cure, Spivak says, perpetuates the colonial gaze. Here, the white gaze that now wants to leave colonialism behind remains the silent organizing principle in the telling of colonial history. It utilizes a vision of seemingly unblemished black flesh, uh, unblemished black flesh to absolve the colonizers from their historical guilt. And it thus continues to instrumentalize black bodies for the self-definition of the colonial masters. Spivak therefore argues that the cure reestablishes white sovereignty over the interpretation of the colonial past. And it repeats the violent aesthetic and political exclusions on which colonialism rests. The vision of the cure forces wounding and healing into a linear sequence that makes us blind to the concealed shares of death that continue to sponsor any promise of peace and prosperity. But is there a different way of seeing Europe's colonial past and how it figures in the present? Spivak suggests ghost stories as such an alternative aesthetics and politics of remembering. She says, I pray to be haunted bypassing the arrogance of the cure. Why ghosts? With Gregor Hoff, my teacher in Salzburg, we can approach ghosts as figures of social memory that open a perspective of the suppressed shares of death in life, especially in processes of societal marginalization. The talk of ghosts, he says, 
connects life and death. It answers to guilt and articulates the desire for redemption. Ghosts are narrative symbols of the unredeemed and perhaps the irredeemable in our visions of peace and reconciliation. The vision of ghosts too, like the cure, is concerned with death and life, guilt and justice, suffering and redemption. Yet, it strikes a different, a more complex balance between a history of suffering and a hopeful future. The cure reiterates exclusion by concealing the shameful shares of death in histories. Ghosts, instead, represent wounding and healing, life and death, in ways that disrupt the self-evidence of a linear sequence, and they instead embody healing, justice, reparation, reconciliation, by way of a fleeting absence, a painful incompleteness, a hopeful yearning in the midst of stories of peace and prosperity, of reparation and reconciliation. Gregor Hoff therefore points out that the metaphor of haunting crucially signifies a problem of observation. He says, this, the ghosts ask, how can we perceive absence? Ghosts stand for the question of how we can perceive the part that has no part in the empire's vision of peace and prosperity. Post-colonial theory suggests that such a ghostly regime of invisibility will take the form of critical, recalcitrant mourning. Such a non-therapeutic memory of the past grounds a different mode of historicization that disrupts linear, violent visions of the cure by making other sense of the event and the narratives that congregate around it. The refusal to be cured raises specters that may transform the myopic, violent tunnel vision of the cure. Through the lens of, the, of haunting, we begin to see that Mpana's statue can perhaps tell a more complex story of post-colonial Africa and uh, an Africa that disrupts the memory politics of the cure. In such a ghostly reading of this statue, it does, it does reclaim Africa for black bodies. It is shaped in the form of the African continent that bears the facial features of a black person. And yet, its color is white. Black and white are inextricably entangled, for better or for worse. Black agency does not, re uh, does not replace the white invasion of the continent, but is at work within it, telling a story about resilience in which chronologies of subjugation and agency appear convoluted. The statue presents us with a wounded resurrection body that is perhaps irredeemably marked by the lethal violence of empire. And yet, it reinterprets signs of death for the purpose of life. A hesitant plant, and it's hard to see on this slide, but when you look carefully, you can see that on the top of the statue. So this hesitant plant is sprouting from what looks like a barren landmass that has been strategically marked by the scramble for Africa. This sign of new life is tied to colonial history. It mirrors the crown of plant, palms that often surrounded portraits of Leopold II. What was a spectacle of colonial sovereignty 
becomes a spectral presence of post-colonial living on in the wake of lethal violence, while the wounds remain visible. In this ghostly reading, Mpana's statue disrupts the vision of colonial healing by making other sense of the event, not by hiding the suppressed chairs of colonial death, but by revealing the festering wounds on a traumatized body, truly transformed life can hesitantly take place. For theologians, such a visit to the museum raises difficult questions. Comparing the regimes of healing and haunting challenges us, how to challenges us to rethink how we understand central soteriological concepts of the Christian tradition. Theological tradition has not been immune to the temptations of the cure and the way the cure envisions exclusionary patterns of participation. The critique of feminist theologians, for example, has shown that the story of cross and resurrection, too, has often been subjected to a triumphalist teleology of life defeating death, precisely in order to sustain patriarchal and colonial regimes of participation in the Christian tradition. Feminist theologians have shown how linear imaginations of salvation have made us blind to ongoing suffering and blind to the asymmetries of power on which suffering rests. And they have exposed the exclusionary underbelly of the political aesthetic arrangements that have organized sociological imaginations in the Christian tradition. This challenges us to rethink how we imagine salvation. Can we tell the Christian story of new life without giving in to the powerful temptations of the cure? Can we register the desire for healing and can we kindle hope beyond predictable chronologies that do not bring real transformation? In short, can the story of cross and resurrection become a ghost story? Drawing on post-colonial trauma studies, New Testament scholar Benny Lear has shown that cross and resurrection are indeed open to spectral readings that complicate established sociological imaginations. His haunting relecture uncovers profound ambiguities at the heart of these stories that disrupt a straightforward narrative from cross to resurrection. These readings show that the cross is simultaneously a spectacle of Roman imperial power, power that demonstrates its sovereignty by disposing of killable people. And yet, at the very same time, the cross is also a specter of death, that, uh, a specter of death that hauntingly reveals that Pax Romana builds on lethal violence. Jesus died as an instrument of colonial sovereignty, and his wounded resurrection body continues to tell a story about the might of his masters. Yet, at the very same time, these wounds on this crucified body also have the power to destabilize the master narrative of the, about, of the empire about itself. Wounds are a powerful way 
to make the empire accountable for the lethal ways by which it brings peace. Wounds expose the unacknowledged chairs of death on which it rests, and wounds make the spectacle of power also a specter of death. Wounds and the tears by which they are remembered therefore reveal a moment of undecidability in the significance of the cross. A moment of undecidability that paves the way for resigning death and life. The refusal to be cured thus rests the hope for resurrection from the traumatic history of colonial power. A remembrance of wounds develops a narrative in the mode of yearning which believes that something remains to be seen beyond the colonial regimes of invisibility. Resurrection in these haunting relictures, therefore, is not a straightforward triumph of life over death. Instead, resurrection emerges from semantic undecidabilities, and it is confirmed only through a hermeneutics of wounds and tears. And here, too, it is the refusal to be cured that carries seeds for salvation. Thomas has to touch gaping wounds in order to see the Lord and believe. It is through Mary's tears at the empty tomb that a vision of new life emerges. A relecture of cross and resurrection as a story of haunting and mourning thus breaks with a triumphant narrative from death to life, but it does open our, lives, our eyes to life that emerges from the midst of suffering that remains. I would like us to take four crucial insights from these re-readings of sotrological imaginations in the Africa Museum, in Tavuyen, and on Golgotha. First, the transformative power of haunting. We have seen that the refusal to be cured is of profound sotrological relevance. The sotriology of the cure replaces the memory of wounds with a new vision of flourishing life that makes us blind to the trauma inflicted through the violent exclusion of the other. The imagination of the cure ultimately does not bring real transformation. Haunting stories about the scars that remain in contrast can unsettle the sovereignty of healing. They turn to wounds and tears as the new organizing principles of sotriology and the rest hope for resurrection from the lethal logic of colonial politics by assigning a different significance to the spectacle of political death. Yet, and importantly, such a haunting remembrance of post-colonial wounds is not about glorifying or hypostasizing suffering. Instead, ghosts and this is our second insight, ghosts present us with an ascetic political problem of absence. Praying to be haunted raises a very specific question. Namely, how do we begin to see the unacknowledged shares of death in post-colonial arrangements of invisibility? How do we remember the part that has no part in the empire's visions of peace and prosperity? Ghosts are not simply there in our memories of the past. Ghosts and the gaping wounds of the past that they represent 
do not have a self-evident presence in memory regimes. We like to dress them. Instead, ghosts are conjured up through a spectral hermeneutics which defies established arrangements of invisibility. Haunting, Spivak therefore says, and this is my third point, haunting is a specific way of reading that traces the invisible, the unsaid and the ununderstandable in seemingly self-evident representations of the past. The critical practice of haunting has thus a revelatory quality to it that allows us to see things in, that allows us to see new things or perhaps things in new ways. Haunting opens our eyes to those that have so far been invisible and excluded from participation. Yet, Jacques Rancière, who has been our guide in the analysis of regimes of invisibility, is very clear that such a ghostly disclosure of the parts, the sans parts, does not automatically lead to a more inclusive, more equitable politics. It does not simply aim at redistributing what can already be seen, and neither does it simply add another part to the existing regime of the visible and invisible. Ghosts do not present an interruption from the outside. Ghosts look different and they work differently. They insert themselves as an absence, as a gap into the normal order of visibility, and they thus rupture established distributions of the sensible. The vision of ghosts, hence, does not simply reshuffle or replace normal orders of visibility, but it operates on a more profound level. It is a debate about what is being seen and what can be said about it. It is a, a debate about who is able to see something and who is qualified to say something. Fourthly, therefore, haunting is a rupture within established regimes of invisibility. It takes place again and again then when established regimes of visibility lose their self-evidence and the possibility of other imaginations of the world is revealed in the cracks. The revelatory visitation of ghosts is not a permanent institution. It does not found a new world, but it is, as Rancière says, an accidental, local, and precarious activity that is always close to disappearing and therefore also close to re-emerging. Ghosts represent a fleeting moment of transcendence that is curiously tied to the world, the rupture. These four insights have profound political and theological ramifications. And I will explore these in my final two steps by first revisiting the debates about decolonizing Europe, and secondly, by showing that they have major implications of how we understand and practice theology. Haunting Fortress Europe. The debate about decolonization in Europe we have seen is often framed by sociological imaginations. There is, we have also seen this, the temptation to couch these into regimes of the cure, which, however, perpetuates colonial arrangements of visibility and participation. 
The prayer for a visitation of ghosts, in contrast, is an aesthetic and political practice of suspicion towards such ex exclusionary regimes of post-colonial memory. It provides a critical tool to address those wounds that the colonial gaze stresses in order to conceal the unacknowledged chairs of death on which sovereignty rests. The prayer to be haunted open, opens wounds in order to re reveal the lethal price that we pay for our visions, our hopes, and our empires of peace and justice. Just like Jesus' traumatized resurrection body becomes a specter of death that reveals the violent productions of Pax Romana, so does a scrutiny of wounds in the aftermath of modern colonialism disrupt our powerful desire for the cure that refuses to acknowledge the very real and ongoing effects of colonial trauma. There are unjust racialized asymmetries in the global distribution of resources that perpetuate colonial power structures and that continue to produce death for the benefit of a few. When we refuse to be cured, or as Vincent Lloyd puts it, when we hope to despair, we cannot look at Mpane's statue, Nouveau Souffle, New Breath, without remembering the countless dead bodies washed up at the Mediterranean shores, drowned, suffocated like Jesus on the cross. Through a scrutiny of wounds, we begin to see that these bodies too die as victims of post-colonial violence. It is the refusal to be cured that writes them as unacknowledged chairs of death into public discourses on global migration that remain all too often silent on the colonial origins and neo-colonial entanglements of migration. These bodies become spectral presences that haunt Fortress Europe and disrupts its histories of peace and prosperity. In short, the prayer to be haunted calls for what South African theologian Alan Busak has called a farewell to innocence. When or if Paradise Europe begins to lose the appearance of its innocence, then its colonial legacies become an intimate part of its self-understanding. The colonial legacies emerge as the part that has no part at the very heart of its identity, rupturing how Europe sees itself. The ghosts of its colonial past challenge us to reconsider the politics of participation through which we distribute access to representation and resources in racialized ways today. Ghosts are thus an aesthetic and political activity that decry lethal patterns of exclusion. And they might also allow us to think in theologically new ways about the revelation of God's salutary presence in the world. Ghost stories we have seen have a revelatory quality that allow us to see things in new ways. Do you not perceive it? They might therefore be a suitable lens to talk faithfully about the transformative hope in a God who makes all things new. Yet, such a move towards haunting theology is risky business. Ghosts we have seen are at work within established regimes of invisibility. They do not interrupt the world from outside, 
but they emerge by rupturing an existing order of things. Ghosts, therefore, are always dependent, or we could even say they are parasitic on the regimes of invisibility that they disrupt. Spivak, therefore, says that the ghost dance ultimately cannot succeed. The transformative revelation of ghosts does not establish a new regime of visibility, but it appears within political aesthetic arrangements and it remains inextricably tied into the arrangements of meaning making. When we think of revelation as a ghostly event, it does not consolidate into a given, clearly definable proprium that we could own as a treasure and could safeguard from change and contamination. Instead, such revelation appears dispersed and dependent upon the worlds from which it emerges. Thinking of revelation as a ghostly activity thus deprives us of the idea that there is an absolute origin to Christian tradition. And it makes it impossible to think of tradition as a progressive unfolding towards ever greater truth. In short, when we think of revelation in terms of a ghostly event that ruptures established regimes of invisibility, we are confronted with the contingency, with the particularity of transcendence. This brings theological intuitions to the fore that have, of course, deep roots in Christian traditions. Insofar as Christian God talk is incarnational theology, it knows how the contingencies of the world inform define and delimit God's talk. Michel de Sarteau describes such knowledge as the theological founding experience of the Christian tradition. The tomb of Christ is empty, and on the way to Emmaus, the resurrected Christ disappears as the disciples finally recognize him. Discipleship is to grapple with a fundamental experience of loss that gives rise to witness in many different and disparate forms. Seto puts it like that. We cannot observe anything outside of a plurality of practices and discourses that neither conserve or replicate it. The founder disappears. It is impossible to grasp and detain him to the degree that he takes shape and meaning in a plurality of Christian experiences and acts. Because it is built on such a fundamental loss, Sato argues, Christian theology does not have a language of its own and no permanent place from which it can speak. No language of its home and no, ho no language of its own and no home from which it can speak. Instead, it is performed by way of a specific modus loquendi that Sato describes as conversion of existing discourses. Lacking a home, and missing a mother tongue, theology is at work by hauntingly making other sense of events and the narratives that congregate around these events. The precise nature of this, of this difference that Christian witness establishes in other discourses, however, this difference remains fleeting and ultimately undefinable. It emerges from, from particular sites and is inextricably tied into their languages. It does not manifest into a deposit of theological knowledge, nor does it translate into a clearly definable Christian proprium. This lack, Sato argues, 
is of profound theological importance. It allows Christian witness to become a sacrament, a sign and tool of what it lacks. Sartreau thus offers us a way of thinking theology that finally brings us surprisingly close to the beginning of this lecture. I have started by showing how cultural studies expose the messy and ambiguous ways in which Christian beliefs and practices are entangled into the many worlds that Christians inhabit. After our interdisciplinary journey, we can now reclaim this critique as a profoundly theological statement about Christian tradition. It can become, this critique can become a theological resource for an incarnational theology that takes the contingency of transcendence as its theological point of construction. Such incarnational theology considers the lack of a Christian proprium as the very condition of theological knowledge production, and it translates into an interdisciplinary approach uh, that investigates how theological languages have taken their shape in critical engagement with other discourses. It holds on to what Adorno has called the miraculous point of view of salvation, but it tries to account for the Christian hope of resurrection in the very midst of ambivalent practices of meaning-making. While it desires to preserve a liberative thrust of theological knowledge production, it is also and painfully aware of the profound ambiguity that marks any production of meaning and prevents all our interpretative efforts from ever becoming safe or ambivalent. In this hermeneutical presupposition, we can find the major conceptual difference to modern theologies that uh, across the methodological spectrum, from dialectic theologies to liberal theologies. These approaches do also consider the historicity and contingency of Christian faith, but they try to salvage a notion of a clearly discernible Christian proprium, a clearly discernible Christian continuum in the midst of abelevance. They do this by conceiving of it, for example, as the dialectic opposite to history of suffering, or liberally, as the inherent meaning of history, as progress towards humanization. The interdisciplinary engagement with cultural studies, however, has deprived us of frameworks uh, for imagining a stable Christian proprium that exists clearly discernible in a dialectic or correlative relation to public discourses. Rather, we are challenged to imagine God's salutary presence as irretrievably entangled into the world. We can no longer fall back on imaginations of sociological and ambivalence or anchor it in a teleological his theology of history. In the beginning, I have indicated that such a theology will be apologetic theology. And through the course of this morning, we have collected rich resources, rich conceptual resources to substantiate this argument. Literally, apologetics is language from somewhere else. And the context from which this genre emerged underlines this etymology. Apologetics has a juridical background. It is a defense speech in court, and is thus a speech, a speech form that starts with the objections made by another person. Apologists 
react to challenges that they do not choose themselves. The argumentation does not originate from the inner realm of their own plausibility, but it starts from outside with a challenge that calls them to formulate their convictions. This reiterates in important ways the theological insights that we have gained through our interdisciplinary relecture of soteriology that allowed us to reconceptualize theology as language from elsewhere. Based on these relectures, therefore, we can part with an, an understanding of apologetics as the defense of a self-given proprium of Christian tradition. Rather, we can reconceive of apologetic theology as a theology that realizes that it lacks a language of its own, and that realizes that it does not have a safe, proper place from which it can speak. It is a theological practice that instead knows about the foundational role of other discourses in the formation of Christian tradition. And it is a theology that registers how any attempt to define a Christian proprium depends foundationally on Lozi Alieni. Methodologically, it translates into an interdisciplinary approach that starts with an exposure of theology to other places, a formulation that Christian Kern likes to use, and epistemologically, it takes the messy, ambiguous practices of meaning-making, both inside and outside the established Christian tradition, as the point of departure for constructing knowledge about God. Apologetic theology is indeed public and political, and with this I would like to close. Not because it has a specifically Christian proprium to defend in public space, but because it cannot but find sources for representing God's absent presence elsewhere, in other languages and places. As such a speech from elsewhere, apologetic theology resists ultimate closure, and it might, therefore, precisely for this reason, have a transformative, salvific effect. Resisting closure, it is a political, aesthetic, and theological practice that strives to reveal the unsaid, the invisible, the incomprehensible. Resisting closure, it is a political, aesthetic, and theological practice of transcendence. Resisting closure, apologetic theology becomes the prayer to be haunted by ghosts that rupture political aesthetic regimes of invisibility. And with this, thank you again for everything. Thank you for listening to the Theology Research News podcast from KU Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies. Find TRN on the web at theologyresearchnews.com and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs>